why do a thing like long read Sunday? Why focus on narratives? For me, it's any time that you are trying to will into existence an industry, a space, a technology, an idea. Um, there's a big long phase where people don't care by and large, um, except the devoted few, because there's so many other things to care about. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear, I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and on today's episode, I am speaking with Nathaniel Whittemore. Nathaniel is a communications specialist in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, and he is the mastermind behind Long Read Sunday, where he curates the best content in the blockchain and decentralization space. He's deeply interested in how narratives evolve in our industry and the way these stories shape what we build, what we use, and what we believe. On this episode, Nathaniel talks with me about the rapidly evolving narrative of privacy, how telling the right stories can drive mass adoption of new technologies, and how the gap is still widening between how the public sees blockchain and how the blockchain space sees itself. Nathaniel's a confident, critical, and careful observer of the decentralization space, and his perspective is super valuable for not only his insight, but also his objectivity. And he certainly encouraged me to look at things differently, so I hope he can inspire you as well. Without any further introduction, here is Nathaniel Whittemore. Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Decentralize This. I'm thrilled we can make this work, man. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So we start every episode exactly the same way. Who is Nathaniel personally, professionally? How would you describe yourself? Uh, let's start professional. So uh, I am. Uh, I do a couple things. I, I have the. I guess the, the way that most people in crypto who know me know me through a thing I called Long Read Sunday, which is a weekly direct to Twitter newsletter, basically of the most interesting threads and essays that I found that week. Um, and then, uh, and then, kind of behind the scenes, I'm helping companies think about um, their narratives and figure out the the right content to tell those stories um, with a specific focus on crypto. So that's the professional. Um, without going too much into the backstory. And then me personally uh, is a dude who just had a kid who lives up in the Hudson Valley a couple hours outside of New York, um, really likes music, has done a lot of weird things in his life, and is super stoked to be here today. Awesome. Man, I want to hear about all of that. Uh, and congratulations on the kid. Uh, and uh, Thank you. Thank I'm a you. musician myself, but now I suppose I would say it's in remission. Like I yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm pretty involved. I'm pretty involved in the in the day to day of uh, Enigma and the crypto space and everything else. But um, I originally got into the space actually looking for a solution to digital rights management for musicians and songwriters. Yeah, that was uh, one of the one of the things that got me really interested in sort of, you know, I don't know. For, I mean, for me, I can kind of categorize my interest in in different parts of what is kind of lumpily the crypto industry in different buckets. Um, and that piece was certainly one of the things that, uh, that that really got me interested about real life use cases of uh, blockchains outside of strictly financial applications. Yeah. And then, of course, it turns out that the music industry is fundamentally broken in other ways. So. Maybe a blockchain can't fix it after all. Oh, yeah, it's it's going to be it's maybe but maybe many blockchains stacked on top of one another. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just just a whole yeah. host of them. Maybe that'll do it finally. Yeah. Well, exactly. at any rate, uh, it's an amazing motivation, of course. And I know you have many motivations now. And, and the space, as you said, has grown very lumpy. It's very complex. There's a lot of reasons to be here. So before we go into some of your particular initiatives on the in the crypto space, like Long Read Sunday, Narrative Watch, where, where you're always exploring some of these big trends that are going on in the space, I do want to ask you, you know, why do you do it? Like, why do you care about this space? And why does the way you care about it manifest as this incredible amount of work that you're putting into the storytelling and the narrative of blockchain and crypto and decentralization? Without trying to get too much into the backstory, I was a history major and actually kind of first focused on, um, I was in the social impact space first. And, you know, so I was in school right after September 11th. Um, and there was this huge explosion of people who wanted to go abroad and do good for lack of a better word. Um, you know, you had some people who were kind of like very retreat, uh, you know, when that happened. And then a lot of us who had grown up in the nineties with this idea that everything around the world was great, despite the fact that it was actually the bloodiest decade since the 1940s. 40s. And when the towers came down, it was uh, a, a, almost a loss of generational innocence. And, and you saw this play out um, in a lot of different ways. But one of them was that there was this huge surge in, in kids who wanted to go abroad. So study abroad in general went up, but volunteer abroad went through the roof. Um, and what happened was all these kids found that they were super ineffective, right? They were basically useless in these programs. And um, counter to the narrative of kind of the everyone gets a trophy, they just want to pat on their back. My experience was that these students who were going out and, and raising their hand and saying, I want to make a difference, were very frustrated about their uh, inability to do so. And when they came back, they just heard over and over and over again, well, like, go get a degree in development studies. And so uh, I was kind of fortunate to be in a university at a place in time where they had undergone a massive massive increase uh, in their endowment over the past decade before I got there and had uh, you know, articulated global engagement, broadly speaking, as one of their major initiatives and didn't really have a plan for it. So um, I gave them a plan and we started designing programs. And so I spent the first few years after school doing that and uh, and kind of through that, that's how I got into technology. I ended up as kind of the, the as, as uh, social entrepreneurship was becoming a, a hot thing and social media was just starting to take off and these forces were converging and there were all these new platforms for social change. And I started working with one called change.org and that's what brought me out to San Francisco, where I was for about a decade. And so I, you know, when I, when I think about how I ended up in the crypto space and, and the why, in a weird way, it combines these two, two parts of, of what I've done and where I've spent time and attention with the one being the, the technology side. I spent a decade in San Francisco going back and forth between startup and, and venture capital roles. Uh, but then I also kind of my roots and foundations were in this uh, global impact space. And in fact, I would say that it wasn't really until I connected the dots back to the impact side that the space really um, hooked me, right? So when I was in San Francisco in 2012, 2013, um, Bitcoin was around, but it was the height of the uh, payments narrative. There's the height of the, you know, it's just another mobile money thing. And um, it was really pretty fundamentally uninteresting to have just one more solution to buy coffee at the Coupa Cafe while you were pitching investors. And it wasn't until I actually separated a little bit from the technology-centric view of the world and started to look at it in the context of um, you know, people being able to 
get their resources out of unstable monetary regimes in a way that was much harder to seize and so on and so forth, that that the the whole thing kind of clicked for me. So um, so yeah, so for me, the the why is uh, I, I'm interested in the broad patterns of of history that orient us towards more freedom, more liberty, more sovereignty, uh, more of people being able to be creative, innovative, entrepreneurial, and build things and lead lives of meaning, health, and happiness. Um, and uh, you know the the why in terms of you know why do a thing like long read Sunday, why focus on narratives? For me, it's any time that you are trying to will into existence an industry, a space, a technology, an idea. Um, there's a big long phase where people don't care by and large, um, except the devoted few, because there's so many other things to care about. And so I do believe in some ways, all of us are, are battling for, um, attention that is allocated and distributed to other areas, uh, and that we want people to, to take us seriously. So, so narratives are such an integral part of that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a. I think it's it's why I'm in the narrative part of the space, I think, has a little bit to do with me and a little bit to do with where the industry is. I I mean, it's clear to me how you ended up doing what you do, and, and it's clear that you have a talent for it. Uh, the, the difficulty that I always run into with this, though, is like, who who says it's, you know, your story to tell, right? And the, the complex thing about the decentralization space is that there is no central authority telling us what the narrative should be. That's that goes down to the the design of the systems at their fundamental level. So how does it feel? I, I want to know, like emotionally, like how do you feel on a day to day basis knowing that you're taking on this responsibility of storytelling, but it's for the decentralization space, which at least nominally is not supposed to have like a, a figurehead. Well, I kind of have the the, the nice uh, place of I do a lot more observing. Uh, and sharing the the patterns and trends that I'm seeing than asserting one narrative uh, versus another in terms of what I believe or what we should do, right? And that's to say that I'm without opinion. In fact, I actually think to a degree that I, that not everyone realizes curation has its own the, – the way that you as a curator assert your opinion is often in what you choose not to include uh, and, and how you balance what you do include. So there is – I would say there is sort of you know my personal biases come out in the, the sort of curation that I do, but it's in a subtle way. It's not the same as, uh, as kind of screaming this is what everyone should believe. Um, so I think for me, you know, the – I think it's an interesting point that you bring up that no one has the authority to, you know, claim what the narrative is. I guess for me, what that means is that also, you know, everyone has the privilege of trying, should they so choose, and letting the market decide if uh, if it's something that's interesting to them. So the market for narratives is an interesting one, and I and I've at least gotten into some Twitter conversations. I don't know about on this podcast, but the idea that like investors in this space try to buy narratives low and sell narratives high yeah. <laughs> and and not even like the underlying technologies right they're just they're just betting on narratives to me that's such a fascinating framework to work in and and as you're as you're saying now like you you are not you know a hedge fund you don't have a position that you're trying to advocate for you do seem to be a more independent observer but you are as you said in the act of curation Stripping away some of the narratives that have the potential to – well, either they're just outright lies, right, or they're just mm -hmm. you know, misleading or they're dead ends, right? Like so how do you, how do you go about finding the signal 
in the noise. What what to you stands out? Like, are, are there filters that you use where you're immediately it's immediately obvious to you that something is noise? And is there a filter that you use when it's like, okay, I I really believe that this is the signal. This is what we should be looking at for seeing the path forward for this space. So I w- I would say first and foremost. Uh, you know, take everything with a grain of salt, including, you know, when people ask like, Hey, is there any sort of data surrounding like your narrative watch or anything? And the answer is absolutely not. It's completely subjective based on the, I think pretty good sample of, of interesting opinions and perspectives and hopefully some diversity of perspectives that I follow, but it's really just, this is one guy's, uh, take on what seems to be surging relative to, you know, where it was, a uh, you know, a few weeks ago or a few months ago, Right. So I I would say, you know, when I'm thinking about narratives or even advising people around them, it's entirely about just broad brushstrokes patterns. Um, And so it it should be treated that way. Right. This is one one kind of little data point. Um, But I think in terms of the signal versus noise question, you know, there's. There's a, a a lot of noise, but it, I mean, it's it's such similar types of noise in a lot of ways. Like, the, I, I, okay, so I think that in some ways, the the phase that we're at realistically with a lot of uh, this space is, um, it's it's just it's it's almost still battles for like why and what are the fundamental uh, underlying things that matter, right? Like the idea of kind of the decentralized finance or open finance narrative is largely a, an, a, an argument about why uh, this sort of technology should exist and what it can do in general, right? Um, whereas like, I don't know, I feel like the narrative space is not particularly congested right now with well, actually, let me take a step back. It's, it's an interesting question. You can tell I'm kind of thinking out loud a little bit, but I can. Post post ICO boom, like that sucked away a huge amount of the the narrative noise. And what I mean by that is that once the narrative power, which really was much more of a capital formation and a FOMO power of ICOs, went away, you uh, you killed you took with it a huge number of uh, narratives that people were pushing. So, you know, blockchains for this decentralization for that, right? All of those were interesting kind of tiny sub narratives trying to compete for their moment in the sun, trying to raise capital on the basis of that. Now we're dealing with much bigger, broader patternicity uh, of, of narratives where it's like, what are the things that on a fundamental level are interesting and worthy of some amount of attention? And then within that uh, is, is, who's the most interesting project or what are the most interesting projects or who's executing well. Um, you know, so I feel like the types of big narrative things that we're dealing with are, uh, are, they're much broader, um, uh, than, than kind of the, the micro narrative stuff. So it's, you know, to some extent it's, it's about seeing how the relative balance of these things changes over time. So let me break it down. I want to I want to try to get into specifics since you write a lot about yeah, sure. the specific narratives. So there's yep. there's narratives that exist internal to the space, I would say, and then there's the narratives that sort of leak out into the outside legacy world. And mm-hmm. the ones that achieve dominance within the space, I think you write a lot about you're you're very good at like kind of picking out like here's what people in the Ethereum community are talking about, here's what's being talked about in the Bitcoin community. Here's, you know, the stories we're telling ourselves when it comes to the stories that the general public is hearing. It's usually through the filter 
of something like a CNBC or a Bloomberg, there is still a financial focus to this, which means they're covering price movements or they're covering in today's news, um, Justin Sun paying $4.5 million to have lunch with Warren Buffett. Those are the mm-hmm. narratives that leak out and get to the broad public. So my question, I guess, before we get into these specific narratives that, that I want to discuss, like privacy is one, but what, what do we do about the fact that the stories we're telling ourselves in the space to build alignment are a lot of the times at odds with the perception that the space has in the broad public, usually because of the channels they're receiving this information through? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a a whole bunch of things. I think one is um, there's sort of <laughs> almost like a base level of acceptance that we need to have that the it's hard to conceive of a world in which uh, your average media outlet that's looking at this space is not going to focus on um, you know just price like big movements of money or like a big piece of news even if it's a silly piece of news or something salacious right so they're they're always going to be biased towards those things to some extent there's just no way to get around it it's and it's a that's you know it's it's we're experiencing the problem, but it's a problem of the fundamental model of media that is, uh, you know, kind of supported by advertising, driven by clicks, uh, and so on and so forth, which is a is a is as you know a huge issue to deal with all on its own. So, so one part one is accepting that there's only so much we can do to uh, improve that. Um, part two is I think meaningfully engaging or trying to with those outlets, um, and rather than just kind of casting them aside, creating uh, opportunities. For for them to uh, to to learn and understand more. I mean, I think one potentially promising thing is that uh, every time that crypto, I mean, Bitcoin in particular, but crypto as a whole, it, it claims you know is claimed to be dead and then resurfaces, it makes the media pay even more attention um, relative to the last time they paid attention. And you know, hopefully, some of the journalists who have been in this space and covering it and who really understand get like, you know, leveled up to uh, the the major outlets the, the the next time around and things start to heat up. So um, I think engaging with those outlets and, you know, giving them more uh, tools to understand and find the interesting things that aren't just those simple surface level uh, is another big piece of it. And then I think third is that, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, if even um, individual evangelism that's required of us in this space, you know, where people are by and large, the it's almost like there's a top down and a bottom up strategy that need to come together for the expansion of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which is, you know, people hear about it, if nothing else still existing in the news. And then they ask their friend who's really involved, like, hey, what's this about? And they ask the questions, maybe they parrot those narratives back. And that person, instead of kind of dismissing them or, you know, just rattling about the media actually engages and flips the narrative switch. You know, this is a, I, I think that all of us have stories of seeing, you know, some member of our family or, or a friend, um, you know, finally click and get it because we were able to contextualize it in a way that made sense based on what we knew about that particular person and their interests or their needs or their experiences. And, you know, ultimately, I think when it comes to uh, expansion of this space and interest in this space, it's going to be driven by the combination of, you know, those major, major kind of moments that, that make people take notice again. And then, you know, the, the, the folks in, who are intimately involved in this space taking the time to actually explain it. So let me hit you with uh, an analogy here, because, uh, you know, this is kind of the experience 
of people who have been in the the privacy space, the data privacy, data security kind of space, which is that most of the time people don't want to pay attention until there's some sort of major news event where they suddenly realize that actually this has been a problem all along, right? You don't you don't get stories every day about the slow erosion of, you know, personal protections until there's a Cambridge Analytica whistleblower or until there's an Equifax hack, right? And then suddenly everybody wants to pay attention, but it's still like the kind of attention that's getting paid it becomes sort of just a drumbeat of failures. There's not a lot of attention being paid to the solutions. Uh, that's a privacy thing, right? But, you know, Enigma's sort of sitting at this intersection of privacy and decentralization. So we, we're, we're struggling in the same way, I think, with both. Privacy doesn't matter to enough people until it's a problem. Decentralization doesn't matter to enough people unless they think it can solve a problem that they have. Uh, and most people don't think that privacy is a problem. Most people don't think that centralized apps are a problem. They're more likely to focus on the symptoms of these systems. So given that we're, we're facing the same problem from two very, you know, different directions, but you know, let, let's use privacy because it's something that the media is already attempting to do, or maybe companies are already attempting to do. How do you see the, that the privacy narrative has evolved? Because I would say two years ago, nobody cared really. And now suddenly I'm seeing like every other day a TechCrunch headline about some sort of major like data breach or something else. Do you think that the privacy narrative is, is this going to lead to real change? Do you think now we're going to see like antitrust suits and everything else? Like, is this a, is this an example of a success of a narrative bubbling up in the public consciousness? Or is it going to fizzle out like all of the other times there's been major privacy scandals in the past? So... Well, one, I think from a, a narrative and marketing standpoint, you guys are screwed. You have way too much work for any one company. Good luck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, because I do think you're exactly right that there's you're you're literally actually dealing with two two versions of the same phenomenon at, at the same time, um, which is really tough. So, uh, you know, my my hats off and my heart goes out to you. Um, the second thing, though, is I you know, so I do I think about the privacy thing a lot because I, it, it's hard not to look at it and feel a little bit like the frog, you know, slowly boiled in the kettle, um, here or the pot or whatever, right? Like it is, uh, it, it's been such a slow erosion, the consequences of which are so in the background for so long that it's not something, you know, even when we have these major moments, uh, and, um, and, and kind of breaches or whatever, uh, it still is not something that we feel usually it's not a it's not a the the consequences of it aren't necessarily apparent in a huge way um now sometimes they are obviously but for most people, even who are seeing something about like Cambridge Analytica, like the only reason that became such a touchstone moment is that it was conflated with, you know, half of the U.S. being really pissed about the election results. And so it was kind of wrapped up in that. Right. There, there For the first time, there was a consequence um, alongside a kind of a data misusage. Um, so I, I think, though, that there's it's really interesting to me right now what's happening with privacy. So you you kind of have. Uh, so if you were to just ask whether on their own, um, consumers would by and large shift out of this mindset of, well, who cares about privacy if you haven't done anything wrong and all the other tropes, which I think are true and, or just like the, the kind of over-reliance on convenience and the, you know, uh, innocuization or whatever, uh, of, of people against caring about privacy. Um, I don't know that I think that it would change, but you have a new phenomenon or, or, or a new piece happening as well right now, which is that, uh, well, two things. One, um, 
politicians and regulators are starting to make it an issue that they are going to beat over and over and over again and hammer. Um, I do think that we are going to likely see some sort of antitrust legislation. Now, whether it's sophisticated or smart, whether it's the right thing to do or not, it feels like it's it's coming. Um, or at least it is going to be like very on the edge of coming for, uh, for, for a while. And it's not going to be something that goes away. And the more that people who are, you know, whatever we think of them, leaders in the public eye make this an issue, they're effectively selling a narrative to their constituents and saying, you should care about this. And here's why. Um, and I think that makes a difference. I think that's a that's a different kind of position of uh, of some amount of authority or at least influence when it comes to why they care. Now that is, I think, combined with the fact that companies who are in a position based on their business model to focus on their competitive difference, specifically companies like Apple, which has basically just had a privacy day today at their at their developer conference. Like so, the 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 problem for a company like Google or Facebook talking about privacy is that their their entire business model is based on you know taking data about people who use their services and and theoretically abstracting it and you know anonymizing it and whatever. Uh, but still, they traffic in data. Right? They traffic in the, the 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 crunch of what they can learn from data. Apple sells things to people, and so has this ability to take a more um, privileged position. And and it's you know the cynical side is like, well, they get to because that their business model allows them to. But at the same time, they you know the it, they've been consistent with this, right? Like if you go back and watch Steve Jobs talking about the early days of the internet, it was something that he thought about as well. So. Anyways, I think that when you take the combination of not just the, the kind of constant barrage of, you know, breaches and all these sort of things, but leaders from both the private sector and the public sector telling their constituents and or their customers that this is a problem and it is something that you should care about, that feels to me to have much more promise to actually get people to, like, the, it, it feels like we might shift the default assumption about what you should expect or how you should feel about privacy from, oh, it's something off in the back background and I don't really have to care about it to, oh yeah, we're supposed to care about that. I, yeah, you, you make a great point about Apple versus Facebook and Google. Uh, and at the same time, you know, these are all massive companies, regardless of business model, regardless of who can own the privacy narrative best, which is suddenly a valuable narrative to own, I guess, for the first time in forever. Uh, mm -hmm. it, even though they're so different, they are the same in the sense that they have monopolistic control over what they do. And between those three companies and then a few others, obviously, including Amazon, you know, they have complete control possibly of the entire tech sector. And when I look at narratives in the space, and this is something I've written about as well on, on the Enigma blog in particular, uh, what, what we're kind of pushing against is not just this idea that our privacy has eroded or that like, you know, it really is this idea of just these overwhelming centralized companies and systems that now are completely unchecked. There is no balancing force. And really what I think the narrative in the decentralization space should be, I, I first of all, I think we should call it the decentralization space because it exists in opposition to these massive centralized systems. And the advantage should be that we can build systems that can compete with them and give consumers choice. And it comes down to this element of like, choice and consent more so than it does about this idea of privacy, especially when you look at the fact that like blockchains are very, very bad at privacy. That's not what they were meant to do. 
they were meant to, you know, be a distributed ledger or establish truth or, or, or be good at verification, but certainly not privacy. Um, so I don't know. I, it's weird. It's weird to try to like build that narrative, uh, for the space when it feels like so many people would rather argue about so many things, but like, I, I don't really care at the end of the day, which one of Apple or Facebook or Google protects my privacy best. What I care about is the fact that like they, their power is unprecedented and unchecked. And because of them, I don't have a lot of faith that the consumer systems of tomorrow will protect consumers better than the consumer systems of today, regardless of whether they build some privacy solutions into them. Like what government could possibly regulate these companies? I mean, do you believe that government actually can effectively regulate companies that have reached this scale? Is is there something they can do? It's tough. I think, I mean, the best, the, uh, I like to the extent that there is action, I think you'll see the consensus first action would be um, unwinding Amazon or Instagram and WhatsApp from Facebook. But I think you just take a look over at Amazon. It's like, where would you draw these lines? You know, like Amazon is so is subtly and quietly or not so subtly or quietly, if you're a vendor, replacing every brand in the world with an Amazon brand, right? Because they have infinite data about consumer preferences. They own the platform. They own the algorithms for ranking on the platform. Like Amazon to me is a much bigger monopolistic threat when it comes to actual, you know, commerce than, uh, than, than any of these others in some ways. Um, and I think to your point, like we are in uncharted territory in terms of the influence of these companies, the power of these companies, because of how they fit in our lives. We don't interact with them in the same way that people interacted with companies 50 years ago. These are, um, you know, I think there's, they're, they're much closer to utilities that just exist, you know, omnipresently around us. Um, so I think that, you know, the, one of the major motivations for, uh, for people getting into this industry is this sense of, uh, that unchecked power needs to be checked on a systemic level rather than just on a ideological level. Um, and I think that the, the challenge and why it's so easy to get cynical really fast is that that's an enormous task and, and, and going up against these, uh, these platforms is incredibly difficult to even imagine how you start. So, I mean, as a, as a, for example, like last week, uh, or last weekend, I guess, um, all of the news or all the conversation was about this voice platform that EOS is launching, right? So it's a social network backed or it's built on EOS. Um, and it's, it's supposed to be the thing that, you know, all the people who want a decentralized social network alternative want, right? Which is, uh, the ability to have better control over data. The idea that content creators get kind of cut in, um, and get value on the basis of what they contribute to the network. The idea that you use tokens to align the incentives of the network in such a way that there's not a, a separate class of network owners who are a for-profit company who eventually have to compete against their users and extract more value from them. Uh, 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 some solution to dealing with bots and, and fake accounts, right? So it's like the smorgasbord of these options. And I think that the challenge, and, and I wrote a thread about this, the challenge is that they could nail all of those things and actually be incredibly good stewards. And this is holding aside like no cynicism or whatever, not even getting into the underlying architecture of EOS versus anyone else. Like they could do everything right. And it's still not like actually hit 
because social networks become popular because social hooks like and experiences compel people to shift their behavior to them, right? Like Instagram offered something fundamentally different than Facebook did. And it was able to build network effects uh, on the basis of that. You know, over the last few years, TikTok and before it musically offered something that was a really different creative experience, a very different content experience. It was something that you couldn't just kind of shift over into Instagram or put it into Snapchat. Uh, and because of that, it's, you know, kind of taken a huge different amount of energy. Um, unless one of these social networks has something that is kind of different, it's going to be very difficult. And I think this is the challenge of, you know, quote unquote, decentralized products or just any product in this sort of blockchain and cryptocurrency space is that they have to compete on the same factors as any other consumer application, centralized or otherwise, and still somehow like embed embed the values and the ideals and all of the the the, the kind of don't be evil instead of or can't be evil instead of don't be evil into their systems while not really getting to leverage those things as much of a, a, of a competitive advantage. You know, I don't think that you can bootstrap a social network just on the basis of, of the ideology behind it. And that's, uh, that's really difficult. Yeah, that, that seems to consistently fail. And I, I worked at Snapchat for a bit. I, I've seen very successful social companies also kind of feel like they could get by on and, and compete on ethos. And uh, it did not work, spoilers, um, but it really didn't. Uh, at least not to the extent that uh, maybe the venture capitalists would have would have hoped that it would. Uh, okay, so let me let me let me say this: a big focus of this podcast, in particular, but Enigma at large, is this idea of mass adoption, and our mission is to accelerate the mass adoption of decentralized technologies. And everything you're telling me right now is basically saying, "Good luck." You know, you're up against companies that don't have scruples when it comes to like the misuse of consumer data. They have massive brands already in the consumer space. Most people, this isn't really resonant for, right? This, it feels like sort of the bear, the bear case for decentralized technologies. So you'd think that this would be a bigger topic of conversation within the decentralization space, realizing that we are going to need mass coordination at scale to overcome some of these cultural hurdles. And yet, when I read through something like Narrative Watch, I'll just pull out the ones that that were from last week. And again, I think you're these are the narratives that are dominating the space. I don't think you're misstating the focus of the space. I just want to focus on what what you had. Uh, I'm looking at one, and it says like the return of token sales, uh, Ethereum competition, mm -hmm. governance, fair launches versus dev incentives fund consolidation, you know, like these are what people are talking about because they have money tied up in these systems or they, you know, they really care about like what's fair for like developers who are launching these systems. How, how do we manage these systems? They're very much caught up in the how and the what. And none of these narratives are, are really about like, what do people think about us right now? And how are we putting together like a, a consistent front? Uh, you know, how, how do we stay relevant? Like, so what's it going to take for people to focus? I mean, I'm not saying any of these narratives aren't, aren't aren't useful to think about. Obviously, they are. We're trying to build real products and get real adoption and solve real problems. But what's it going to take for some of the narratives in the space when people only have so much time in the day to think about this stuff? How do we get people thinking maybe, let's say, 50 to 100 percent more about these external narratives versus these internal narratives? Because otherwise, I don't see how we're ever going to get to mass adoption. I think it's a great point that there's a difference between inward facing and outward facing narratives. Um, 
Uh, although inward facing narrative watch is a terrible hashtag, so I probably won't adopt it. But um, <laughs> please don't. Yeah. No, I think it, I, I think it's a really good point, though. Uh, so I guess where my mind goes first is who has the incentives to spend time on those outward facing narratives versus inward facing narratives. Mm. And I think that it's, it's maybe useful to actually look at that because, you know, we get into the situation where if we talk too broadly about adoption, it's like, well, with who and why and, and what matters. And so what might be more interesting is looking at who are the groups who are, you know, only one step away or two steps away, who are the kind of crypto curious, right? Um, and, and what is it, that could pull them in both from a narrative perspective, but then, you know, what do they have here? So, you know, I guess I'll take, for example, I think that part of why, okay, so it was blockchain week a couple weeks ago, uh, in New York, and it was a lot, there was a lot more focus on, okay, if you had asked people, uh, at the end of blockchain week, 2018, you know, what they thought blockchain week 2019 was going to be about. I bet even the people who were kind of down on ICOs and thought they were kind of living on borrowed time would say maybe it'll be about STOs or whatever, you know, the securitization of real world assets, because that was that was what it's going to be about. Once once the ban hammer came down from the SEC on ICOs or just the market dried up, it would shift over to more reputable, you know, tokenization of, of securities um, when instead it was a, there was a lot more conversation on. Uh, Bitcoin relative to to other assets, and and then within the Ethereum community and kind of all the other smart contract communities, decentralized finance, and so it was still it was really like a return to money rather than decentralized applications, and I think that part of the reason for that was was kind of in some ways consensus. And, and blockchain week is is almost like a lagging indicator of what happened the year before in terms of who was out evangelizing what audiences. And I think a lot of the energy went into um, the attempt to get the uh, traditional financial world interested in this uh, asset as an asset class. Um, and so, you know, when you think about who was telling narratives to, to go out and, and get more people to come in those outward facing narratives, it was folks like David Nage who was hosting his family office conference and getting those people who didn't really have exposure to, to Bitcoin or any other crypto to start learning. Right. And so, so it, it, you know, I think that that's where you've seen some progress, right? The idea of uh, so one of the one of the narrative memes I think right now that is um, at least making people take notice. I, I don't want to say it's it's uh, it, it's hugely kind of successful, is the idea of um, of Bitcoin as a non-correlated asset, uh, something that just does not move with with other parts of the market. That's something that is interesting and appealing appealing as a narrative to asset managers, to financial professionals who don't really have anything to do with crypto on kind of an ideological perspective. Um, so that's interesting to see, you know, in the context of this conversation, not like, like, not in terms of anything about Bitcoin or what the right narrative there is or anything like that, but just in terms of the fact that it, it is something, it's a narrative that is explicitly about, um, you know, people who aren't interested yet, who have some financial reason potentially to be interested getting involved. And so it's almost like, what are the other versions of that from a narrative perspective, other categories of applications, be it decentralized finance or, or gaming or whatever, you know, I think each of them, uh, each of these different areas that people are trying to apply blockchains and cryptocurrencies to have, uh, have a set of, of, you know, audiences that are just one step away and a set of narratives to potentially appeal to them. And, and the question is how they line those two things up.
I think Bitcoin as like a, a non-correlated asset and like a standalone asset class of like digital assets, that that's kind of probably what should have been happening, you know, before, right? We, we, we had this one major asset that was interesting for a particular reason that had, you know, a solid six or seven more years of history than any other digital asset in the space that that was a comparable right in terms of like its longevity and like and its cultural resonance like that's a lot that's longer than most of these assets have existed it's longer than you know enigma has been uh, an entity itself so i you have to respect the longevity the importance the resonance the cultural resonance of bitcoin and at the same time i i think that where i'm starting to go with thinking about how these narratives are going to work is these narratives have to relate to the Bitcoin narrative. Bitcoin is something where I, I think it's just never going to go away from the public consciousness. You just can't disrupt the brand of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin wasn't meant to be everything. It's not the only mm -hmm. decentralized technology. It's not the only digital asset. It's just, a, you know, it, it signaled the coming of an entirely new industry. So now when I tell the story of Enigma, for example, what I'll say to people is, you know, Bitcoin was conceived of as a reaction to the financial crisis. You know, it's embedded right in the first block of the chain. You know, it, it's referencing this idea that there was a centrally controlled money. There were banks that were too big to fail. And this was an unsustainable financial system that nearly destroyed itself and would have destroyed itself and maybe still is currently destroying itself. Bitcoin was a reaction to that. And Bitcoin is a decentralized system that has many of the properties that our flawed centralized financial system does not. It has its own flaws, but in that one way, in being like that sort of uncensorable money, it's meaningfully different. And now when I try to explain Enigma, I say Enigma was a reaction to the privacy crisis in the same way. It was a crisis that was caused by over-centralization and by unchecked power, and it has the potential to destroy the fabric of society in a meaningful way. I mean, depends how seriously you want to take the analogy. But as you said, people only started paying attention when they thought it swung an election, an election they didn't particularly agree with. And some of them did. So, you know, if people, if people start thinking, wow, maybe this is the beginning of a trend of crises that stem from this original crisis, like maybe people are thinking, wow, you know, that that banking crisis we had, maybe that's not just a bunch of over leveraged banks, maybe this is going to happen again. Maybe it's going to happen now with central banks. Maybe a major European nation is going to fail. People have started realizing that. They've seen trade wars. So they've decided that Bitcoin is kind of a hedge. I want people to look at what's going on in the traditional like tech space and see Ethereum and Enigma and projects that are like trying to create a decentralized web. They, they need to see that as like a similar kind of reaction, because if they understand why Bitcoin exists, I think they can understand why Ethereum and Enigma and all these Web3 companies exist as well. Does that make sense to you? Does that resonate with you? It absolutely does, because I'm a I, so, you know, whenever I talk with people, I often start with Bitcoin because, you know, as I was mentioning at the very beginning of this, this idea that, you know, I, I thought I was going to spend my whole life uh, working on conflict zones and crisis zones. Um, you know, I thought I was going to be in the Middle East or East Africa or wh wherever. And 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 when I look at those situations now, um, you know, that I was thinking about spending time, even, a, you know, a, a decade and a half ago or whatever, um, the idea of this 
this money-like thing that is not subject to capture by the regimes in those places is such a powerful and different force in, in all of human history that I, that I often start there and I get excited. But to me, and kind of it sounds like the same way to you, that doesn't mitigate the potentiality of, uh, of, of other projects who have taken that inspiration or are trying to apply it differently. I think that it's, there's nothing incoherent about recognizing how much farther along uh, in, in a lot of ways Bitcoin is than, than any other project in the space while still being really excited about the, the potentiality and also not being afraid if things fail. I think that where you know, the, the, the problem that we've run into from a narrative perspective, and to some extent, this is media, but also I think to some extent, it's been the industry is that, you know, for a long time, I mean, listen, we call altcoins altcoins still when they're totally different, right? Like that's an insane name for a category of things that are fundamentally, in most cases, trying to do something differently. Like sure, there are actual altcoins. But if you were being really intellectually sort of genuine, you would take the, you know, X number of base layer chains that are really trying to be better Bitcoin, put them in their own category and then let other things be other things. Now, by the way, it's still totally reasonable to think that other things aren't going to work because of, you know, the velocity problem where people aren't going to want to hold tokens that don't have a monetary premium. Like those are all totally fine critiques. But from a narrative perspective, the idea that everything that's a cryptocurrency is trying to be a better Bitcoin has been hugely damaging to, to the field as a whole. Um, so I think that the, you know, we have in some ways as a space moved past that. And I think it's important that we do as we go do that evangelism. You know, I mean, listen, if you want to write a script uh, of what you just said, more or less, that we can all distribute to our friends and family, um, I think that would be great. <laughs> uh, I, I can't make them say it. You know, I, I, I think a lot <laughs> of people think it, though. And, and again, I, I think it's amplified this issue, right? This disconnect is amplified by the fact that when the reporting comes, it's being reported on price and price is the one thing that's comparable across every asset class. I had Kyle Samani on the podcast and I kind of asked him, it's like, you know, what's the first thing you look at when you're trying to, you know, tell one project apart from each other? And he was very honest. He said market capitalization. Because it's the one thing that all of these token-based projects have and that you can compare. Otherwise, they are super different. And it's not a fair way to compare them. I don't think market cap is a reflection of, you know, anything, you know, certainly not growth potential, certainly not like, you know, potential societal impact. But he's right when he says that's the way most people are going to compare these things. And when they look at Ethereum, they look at Ethereum as being the second biggest digital mm -hmm. asset after Bitcoin. There's, there's not a very good way to, to fight that instinct to do it, especially when the only call to action we could have for an everyday consumer is buy the underlying digital asset, not engage with the network. Do you think maybe this will get easier if we launch more applications that are built on Ethereum or the, or these other networks? Is the problem just that like there's not enough things for people to touch and use that utilize the underlying network? For sure. I mean, that. well, that's one huge part of it. I think that we like we're in this very weird situation where we have private market dynamics and public market dynamics happening at the same time. Whereas like if you take the analogy like, OK, look, so tokens are different than startups. Tokens are not equity, yada, yada, yada. We've gone through this. There's really great essays about this. It's an important mental model to break. However, 
early stage token projects are startups in terms of operationally. Um, they are, you know, new sets of small numbers of people who are, you know, often uh, with some notable exceptions underfinanced that are trying to build things. And so the way that that usually plays out is that they're able to raise some amount of capital and quietly before anyone's looking at them, figure things out and iterate and try things. And if their first thing doesn't work, they can do something else until the point at which the money runs out and, you know, whatever. Like that's that's the level of scrutiny of of startups, uh, you know, in the private space because of the particular uh, way that tokenization enabled a new form of capital formation. We immediately had like the crazy, like not just like stock market dynamics, but like penny stock market dynamics, you know, where it's like anything like it's it's this crazy casino of like, is this news going to pump this price? And it's this addictive game. And that creates a huge huge additional set of challenges where like really that is the action for a while. And I, and I think that it's almost like two totally separate things happening at the same time. And unfortunately it's not enough to just kind of recognize that and, and, and recognize that there is this weird dynamic. Um, you know, the, the, any crypto project has to deal with the reality that that just is, uh, is the case. Those are the table stakes of, of, you know, what, what it's going to be like for them. So I think, um, um, you know, I, I do think, though, to your point that more projects existing uh, helps at least us be able to kind of recognize our, our, you know, are we in like the kind of the, the, the product or mode of, you know, judging applications and their merits and am I interested and, you know, are, are people using these things? And by the way, when I say applications, I think maybe a better word is use cases, right? Uh, people taking out loans and DeFi and all that sort of stuff kind of still right. counts in this category right. for me. Um, versus the, the part of our brain that's like, okay, what's the price action? What is the market interested in? You know, I think that's fine. That's those things are valid. Valuable. Um, but it's, it's been all that for, you know, for basically since, you know, the ICO started. All right. I, I think we've done a really good job and you in particular of sort of identifying, uh, not just which narratives are active, but you know, how they, how they build what's come into, as we said, internal consciousness within the space, what's come into external consciousness, how we can resolve that, whether we should even try to resolve it, like how much of it is even worth fighting, right? If it's just human nature to focus on one thing over another. So I want to close just by asking you, since you spend so much time looking at narratives, right? And I, and I definitely want to recommend to listeners again, to go check out Long Read Sundays, to go check out Narrative Watch and all of these things. You know, is there a narrative that you believe now, now you're turning into a little bit of a prognosticator and I apologize, <laughs> but is there a narrative that you believe is going to inevitably come next? You know, you've seen a lot of narratives now come and go and rise and fall. Maybe you have a sense of these trends. What are people going to be talking about for the second half of 2019 that you don't think they were talking about as much for the first half of 2019, at least internal in the blockchain and decentralization space? It feels likely to me that we there's more debates um, and it eventually some bigger part of the industry gets comfortable with the the, the trade-offs of sort of semi-centralized tokens and what they enable from kind of like a capital formation and issuance standpoint, which is a lot of words out. So here's what I mean. There's all these things, BNB and Leo now, right? These exchange tokens that are creating ecosystems around them, which are basically little federated uh, IEOs or, or, you know, instead of ICOs, um, initial exchange offerings. And I think that we're, you know, 
as these things have started to emerge, we've obviously seen the like, wait, are you kidding me? We're back in the token sale world. What's this? Um, that, that sort of counter narrative, but you're also, you're going to see people like these, these companies are kind of making different trade-offs around, uh, uh, around how things work. And I think that, you know, some number of applications, uh, will decide it's like, okay for them to exist on this different, um, spectrum of, you know, centralization versus decentralization. And, uh, yes, I, I think basically that will, it, it seems likely to me that the pure ideological decentralized versus centralized is going to give way to some amount of uh, a kind of spectrum thinking and execution orientation and, you know, uh, almost agnosticism around um, some of the ideological battles as uh, as we see projects actually get launched. Now, I could be wrong about that, but I've been really um, I, I guess almost a little surprised to see how the response to like Leo in particular has been. I mean, Binance is is a force, um, but as you know, seeing people get excited about Leo and seeing you know the the projects on Leo, and maybe not get excited for kind of the right ideological reasons, but get excited from a, a financial perspective. Um, I think that's going to be interesting to watch. I think there's there's going to be a different. The the ICO story of 2019 is going to look different than the ICO story of 2017. Um, and I think that we're going to continue to really look at these exchanges and, uh, and see that. So that's, that's something that I, I anticipate there being a lot more conversation about, uh, you know, with it not just being the, the narrative so far is unsophisticated and it's just ICOs 2.0. I think it's going to get more sophisticated is basically the, the TLDR. Well, I, I am very interested to see how that evolves. And I, I would hate to see us get caught up in the, in the neo mania of 2017, where just people needed new projects, new ideas, new things to get excited about. I, I would like to think that we can build some sustainable narratives for this space that, that people can continue to invest in and, and see returns from as, as we build the space as a whole. But maybe, you know, as you're saying, there's, there's going to be these smaller waves of excitement that continue to build the audience for the space and and without those you know those smaller waves without this like these new sorts of innovations without these hard conversations about what does it mean to be decentralized what is the value being provided what's the problem being solved maybe those debates are what get new interest into the space and ultimately you know i think you would agree with me what we care about is people using this stuff we care about people caring about what we care about we want people to think differently at least to to quote uh, a very privacy centric company i'm told uh we want them to think about what what this space could really be and i have to thank you for all the work that you do in getting people to think about that and talk about it yeah no i i appreciate that um and and right back at you i think obviously this this podcast is a is a great example of that and one of my favorite things about this space is the the copious amount of uh, of of media created by people in it uh, because they're interested and because they want to learn and because they want to have these conversations. I think that's you know, it's um, it's not totally unique, but it's pretty special and different in this space versus certainly any other space that I've been in. Um, and I do think you know, to, to some extent, this is a kind of moving moving all ends toward the middle um, type of moment. You know, I, I would like to see Bitcoin to continue to crescendo um, and really start to. 
uh, root into the consumer consciousness as this force that is independent and different and let that be a, an entry point to start expanding their mind and see what else they want to experiment with, what else they want to dabble in. Um, you know, even just from an idea perspective, I'm not just talking about other tokens they want to go buy. I'm saying, does it make them think differently about what their expectations, uh, should be for companies and networks they engage with? Does it shift their mindset from thinking about everything that has to be a company, uh, as in Instead, you know, networks can can do different types of work, right? Like, um, let me actually pull this up because I don't want to mistweet him. But Naval uh, tweeted something really interesting about this um, uh, last night, I think. Yeah. Uh, the most valuable startup of the last decade didn't raise money, didn't have employees, gave away the cap table and let anyone invest. Like that is a, that is a idea virus. Once you really let that sort of thing wash over you, um, that I, that I think changes people's, uh, way of looking at the world. And certainly all of us have experienced that. And, you know, the more that we can do to, to get that story out and then let people discover and find other stories that that appeal to them that resonate with them um i'm i'm a big supporter of uh, the more conversation we can have about privacy especially as it relates to the battle against surveillance the better um so yeah this is a this is this is the the job of of all of us in the space is to to tell these stories far and wide and and get people to think differently awesome well as as one of my previous guests likes to say the virus is spreading uh, it, it's, it will continue to do so. Uh, Nathaniel, thank you so much for taking the time to appear. Um, I'm definitely going to add links in the podcast description, uh, to, uh, long read Sunday, some of the tweets that you've done at least and, and to narrative watch and to all of your writing. Uh, I, I'm sure that people are going to have, uh, a lot of follow-up questions for you, especially when they do get the time to dig through all the amount of wonderful content that you've created and curated for the space. So again, thank you for everything. And I look forward to continuing this conversation soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.